the Protect Your Neck Podcast, UFC Mexico City Recap. ¿Listo? Órale. Soy un hombre muy honrado, que me gusta lo mejor. A mujeres no me falta ni el dinero ni el amor. Jineteando en mi caballo, por la sierra yo me voy. Las estrellas y la luna ya me dicen dónde voy. Up, you savages. This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Tom, analyst and writer at MixedMarshallAnalyst.com. And today, on this Sunday, or maybe it's Monday by the time you're hearing this, we will be recapping UFC Mexico City. And uh, like I said on the last podcast, uh, trying to do more of these technical recaps as opposed to alcohol-induced after-party editions. Um, although it usually takes more work, because I actually like, like to go back and kind of watch the whole card and some of these fights, um, as we'll get to, I watch multiple times, especially the close ones, so I can have a, a pretty good opinion. Hopefully an opinion that can kind of foster both sides, uh, both perspectives there, like I try to do here on this here show. And uh, yeah, but it's more of a more of a technical uh, <clears throat> a recap what happened, where we go deep, but not too deep. Not just for time, but also this is audio, and, and some, some of this stuff's kind of hard enough and heady enough as compared to what's out there. Uh, as far as the, as as far as I, you know, how in, how deep I go into the technics, so uh, I don't want to overload too much and try to keep it reasonably digestible. So um, I'm gonna do more of these, but feel free to give me your feedback, positive or or negative. It it, it honestly um, it honestly helps. I know I complain about a small minority of of the MMA audience out there, but that doesn't mean uh, I generally enjoy exchanging with the rest of you because I do. I do, and your opinions and your exchanges are really uh, valued. Just in case uh, you don't think so, so it, it does help, especially if, you know when it's intelligent and constructive. It's the best kind of best kind of criticism. So, anyways, we're just gonna go uh, same order from bottom to top. I'm just gonna kind of jump right into it. Um, <clears throat> starting off from the bottom, uh, first uh, overhead, we went six and six in picks, which is pretty bad, probably the worst uh, so far, um, and. I don't really even feel bad about that because uh, it was kind of a, not just because it was a bad night for everybody, but um, uh, the bank account actually didn't do, do too bad. It ended up a couple percentiles in the positive even because, uh, which we'll get to the 2-0 uh, parlay pieces we went, came in, which were very helpful. 2-1 in props, which was also very helpful. And 0-2 in straight plays, which sucked. Um, but uh, one of those was a bit of... Uh, controversial or at least you know w- worth talking about so uh we will, we will we will talk about that one uh accordingly but but yeah those are the those are the numbers uh, as they stand so uh first fight of the night was Rinaldi versus Herrera this was not an avoid we had a uh we had a prop I believe fight does not go the distance minus 105 at a quarter unit let me pull it up just to make sure Shona fight doesn't go the distance minus 105 Boy, I wish I would have played that more, put it in more parlays. Um, but uh, it still pays off nonetheless. Um, it just was essentially uh, between Rinaldi's submission threats, which we'll get to the technical side here in a second, to Herrera's do or die, I'm going to knock you out, or just get finished and gas out, and then get finished, I should say. Um, it, I didn't see it going, going either way, especially, you know, like I said, Herrera just so jacked. I mean, every time he was punching at 170, I mean, you could just see veins coming out of his neck and cheekbones. I mean, uh, and then sure enough, he has a rough weight cut, as you heard Rinaldi say, and, and he was the last guy to weigh in, of course. Um, I mean, fucking guy works at a pharmacy, by the way. Like, 
Like, does he does he does he work at a pharmacy? Like, he looks like the Mexican Bane. Like, he, it's just hard to imagine that guy working at a pharmacy. I didn't just work in a pharmacy. I was born in it. <laughs> He's just so jacked walking around. But uh, yeah, Rinaldi just he gets rocked coming in. Gets him down. It was kind of cool. Ronaldo admitted he was rocked in the post fight and gives an even uh, even better uh, backstage if you see the media scrum. Um, just real self-deprecating, honest dude. Uh, really enjoyed it. But yeah, anyways, he gets, he gets the takedown. And um, you see uh, kind of in the scramble, you see a Herrera lock up, uh, not a front headlock, but like... Um, I'm not sure if it was a Darce or Anaconda side. I want to say it was Anaconda side, but he didn't, he didn't have the role. He didn't have his legs. He didn't control Ronaldo's body. And uh, I'll kind of do a similar thing from half guard. I'll bait it, or if I'm in turtle and I'm reaching, I'm kind of you know half-ass reaching out for like a single. The guy sprawled out in front of me. Kind of has got a belly on top of my head, kind of a thing, you know. Bad spot. Um, and a lot of guys will just you know from there they'll from the front headlock they'll go lock up like an Anaconda, and I'll let them lock it up. Because I'm really confident, you know, defense, keeping your shoulders spaced out from your neck to give yourself breathing room, keeping your underhook at the appropriate level. And then you can kind of sit through with them and kind of come up on top of them um, if they don't know what they're doing like Herrera didn't. Because, again, Herrera didn't control his legs nor the body of Rinaldi. So Rinaldi comes up top into like uh, almost like a side control. Like you just it looks like he just finished a double leg. Um and that's real useful. Like uh, I'll do again. I'll do it from half guard or from like sitting up with underhook get up in the counter is either a guillotine or a darce. So a lot of times, guy will lock up a darce, and um, then I'll kind of detach the legs of my bottom half guard, set up into a turtle, and you know either sweep over, you know, kind of roll with them. And especially if, again, they're not controlling the legs, you can kind of come up into that double leg position that Ronaldo gets himself into against the cage against Herrera. And immediately Herrera doesn't let go, and Rinaldi knows this, and in his post-fight speech he talks about uh, doing the tape study on Herrera, seeing that he's kind of one of those guys that will hold on to guillotines and front headlock chokes even though he doesn't doesn't have it. It's like a sense of security thing, like, oh crap, uh, I held on to a guillotine too long, and the guy passes side control. Like We see that all the time, even at the pro level, you'll see a guy still hold on to the guillotine for a couple beats longer, even though he clearly doesn't have anything. It's just this... As best as I can describe it, um, it's just kind of one of those things you see over and over in grappling. It's like a sense of security, especially at a lower level, because they're not sure what their options. That's why they're in the trouble that they're in. They're not sure what options they should have banded or jumped to, so they just kind of panic and will just sit there and hold on to the submission hold, even though there's clearly nothing there. Um, and again, uh, holding on for for just a couple beats too long was all Ronaldo needed, because he immediately reaches up, traps the attempting choking arm of Herrera, and then puts the other arm around his neck, locks his hands together, and starts putting the squeeze on for the Von Flew finish. Gets a tap. Real nice from Rinaldi. Happy for that dude. Um, you know, didn't face the easiest guys on the regional scene to get here. Uh, Morales for Sanchez was the next one. This was the first miss of, of, of many. But uh, this was also on the avoid list for good reason. There wasn't a good sample size. Couldn't really find people that were too confident either way. A lot of people sided with Morales, I'm guessing, because of the uh, hype, because a lot of legitimate people from Team Alpha Male were real high on this kid. Which is which, which was surprised me that not only was he not was Morales the underdog, but it was such a wide stretch. Um, even though I disagreed with the odds being that far, because Morales was live, I, I, I did pick Sanchez, uh, who, you know, I'm guessing the reason why the odds makers favored him, like I said on this podcast, was maybe because of his process. And as you saw, he had, you know, the better process, although you could argue why go to the ground with a guy as dangerous as um, 
Morales, but he was really doing quite well. Like uh, he did a wrist feed from half guard, something I really love where, you know, you're on top control for half guard and the guy kind of reaches in and kind of almost turns into you too far. And whether he's going for a Kimura or just kind of grabbing your um, near side wrist, you can kind of use that grip against them where they're grabbing your wrist, but you kind of feed it underneath them and your hand, your right hand that's reaching around their body is the man on top kind of traps their hand that's grabbing on yours. So it's a, it's a trap for a trap, a counter for a counter, you know, countering the counter like they do in striking. Well, the, the, those same concepts as exist in grappling. You know, I'll give you something to grab because you think you, 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 it's something you can attack, but really you're just walking into my trap because you're, you're putting your hands where I want them. Rather than having to fight your hands and play chess that way, let's just make it easy. I'm going to give you, uh, like the Godfather says, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse and based upon you accepting that offer, I have plans B, C, A, and E. Don't ask why I went in that direction, but you get the point. Um, and Morales was showing that he had, or Sanchez was showing that he had those options. Problem is, uh, allows a little bit too much space in a stanza. Get, they get back to their feet, and not even like directly off the break. There's a reset time, and it's just a real classic one-two. Comes right around the shell guard with the small glove. Morales hits Sanchez with a beautiful right hand, drops him. Looks like he goes out for a second, and uh, credit to Sanchez, he, he tries to fight, but I don't think he was all there because it almost looked like he tried to tap from strikes at a certain point, and that's kind of a bold thing. I'm not trying to discredit him there. At just at a certain point, you almost see him like do a tap motion, and then like he just, just doesn't seem all about. Like He just doesn't seem like he's all there. And then you see in the scramble, Morales gets his back, almost gets to choke a couple times, but one time in particular is pretty close, and it looks like he's about to tap, but then he's fighting hands and he's getting out of it. So credit to Sanchez, you know, uh, and then... Finally, it was kind of in too deep, and uh, uh, Morales gets it, you know, very much uh, Jason Knight-esque when he kind of gets the back, you know, one of those guys that are just like a dog on a bone, man. It's going to be hard to shake them off once they kind of get on board and go at it. So nice win from Morales. I'm excited to see him um, going forward um, and, and how he develops, you know. I kind of see him being more like the Brian Ortega type, kind of taking finishes however they may come. So we'll see, though. I'm sure they'll move, they seem to move guys like that along nicely. I have a feeling. Uh, next fight, Quinones versus Rivas. Another one on the avoid list because Rivas was crazy weight cut. Um, not the most dependable guy in his prime anyways. Not his prime, but, well, his most recent prime showing or recent showings. And... Um, yeah, he had cancer uh, and had to come back. Good on him, man. Glad. I mean, just it's just a victory that he was able to come back into the octagon, but just his plotting style seemed to have trouble. He was able to drop Quinones a couple times coming in with those winging counter rights, but then just got a little too excited. So when he would come forward, he'd be kind of telegraphing too much and giving Quinones options of countering, kicking, or the occasional level change and takedowns, which... Mixing up of all those kind of got him around with the whole body of work. Not really too questionable decision there. I don't know the judges' cards. It really didn't matter. It was a pretty clear one. Uh, Quinones gets the win there. I avoided and play it, so it didn't really matter to me. Next one wasn't an avoid. It was the first of parlay pieces. It was uh, Ronnie Yaya versus uh, Henry Briones. And, um, yeah, essentially what it came down to, I mean... Most of the talk was about um, Yaya's cardio, as that was the intangible I highlighted as well coming in, because, you know, Yaya gasses all the time and stuff, right? But, um, again, uh, it, <clears throat> when you really kind of look at through the, the 
the technical microscope and who he was facing, what was going on in those matches, and uh, not excusing the cardio by one means. Like that's no, there's no excuse for that at all. But at the same time, like uh, I think it was a little bit overblown. I think it just came down to matchups, and that's what this fight was about for me. That's why I, I was confident is because you know Briones wasn't really tested, and he wasn't really uh, not tested. He fought Cody Garbrandt, but like as far as legitimate sample size, the sample size, for one, spaced out inconsistent, which is not good even when you're in your prime, much less you're a 30-year-old, uh, late 30-year-old bantamweight, which alone is red flags, right? A lot of miles on them, too, um, at that. Quality or non-quality fights that are all mixed in in his, his background when you look at Brioness. So, I mean, yeah, and, and from high-level guys to Garbrandt with a wrestling background to low-level guys that are strikers from South America with no wrestling background like Guido Canetti. Everybody who wanted to take him down took him down. Now you match him up with the team constrictor there, the constrictor himself, Ronnie Yaya, black belt uh, champion. Uh, not good. Not good. And we saw that. I mean, uh, he uh, first takedown against the fence, you know, I believe they counted it as a fail technically because... Technically, he ended up one and two for takedowns, but it's not really a fail because just like Maya, he'll use the, the bad takedown just to kind of get someone defending and push them to the fence, and then he just kind of changed the failed takedown without losing space in and to another a successful takedown. And that's what Yaya did there. And very little resistance, very little hand fighting overhooks or underhooks like you hear in the commentary. And just essentially, like I tweeted out live at the time, like just no awareness of his hips. Like literally just leaves, doesn't even like leave the key under the mat with a note, just leaves the door like wide open. Like didn't even lock the door, nothing. Just leaves his hips wide open. And once you're in on hips, not just for a takedown, but it's not even the takedown, it's you see that. Yeah, I can get the takedown, but when you allow someone in your hips so openly on that body lock, they're just going to wrap you in tight, get their ear to, you know, your floating rib and kind of climb, follow your, your, your rib curvature up to your backbone, almost sliding your head, taking your back, and then working the takedown, getting at your back. We see that all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was just, and it was already just had that game over since from then on, gets the take, gets the takedown. Briones tries to defend it. You know, he's pretty athletic. He almost just tries to run away from it and, and then push the hands off at a certain point, but it was too late. He already let Yaya in on his hips and, you know, for lacking such fundamentals, Briones had like some random veteran stuff that you wouldn't typically see, like you see from Tony Ferguson, where he tries to hit the Granby like midair, like uh, Tony Ferguson did when this fight against Josh Thompson, where Josh Thompson's already in on the double leg, and he reverses it by grambying. Except the Gramby was so slow, like he was doing a drill that, and that, and he grambies into a leg lock, which is a, a variation of it that Ferguson didn't do. Ferguson just kind of grambied to hips free, just to get just to get away and break uh, Thompson's hold. Whereas Briones kind of steadily is like, I'm gonna walk away, Gramby roll, and grab your leg at the same time. Except it was also slow. That was like. Right, yeah, I was very had to do very little to defend. He just had to. He essentially just had to briefly sit squat and bend uh, uh, with by, by by sit squat by by bending and putting weight on the leg that was being leg lock attempted from Briones, and that essentially broke Briones's grip on said leg, and from there uh, was able just to pass the legs immediately to like a side control or a half guard, I believe, and yeah, he ends up getting to a half guard essentially, and you can almost see the thought process where. 
like you see like rolling where it's like oh the <laughs> the instructor will occasionally maybe because it's odd man out and he wants to give someone some work or you know maybe it's a higher ranking person that the instructor's familiar with they trust each other's like hey let's let's get a roll in and you know maybe the instructor has has a weird agenda and not a weird agenda but just has his own kind of agenda as well where it's the free roll time of the class he's already kind of done his duty to the classmates, maybe if he doesn't feel like he has to police or shepherd the room, which there's some arguments in that uh, as far as keeping your room safe. But anyways, neither here nor there, um, you'll see like an instructor role with a student. And whether it's a talented student or a novice student, you'll just see that there's a clear level difference. And that's what I felt like I was watching with Yaya Embryonis, where he almost looks like he's just picking and choosing what he wants, grabs the wrist, does a setup. You could see him kind of setting, setting up with rib shots just to get, again, I want to make you an offer, uh, not so much a make an offer you can't refuse, um, by, by hitting you with crappy body shots, maybe that doesn't, a concept doesn't apply so aptly there. But another thing I said previously does where I don't want to make it so obvious and go strength for strength and physically grab your wrist and put it where I want. Because if I go to grab a wrist like a Kimura lockup where your hand is in a, you know, while your arm's in a certain position, it's going to give me a lot of work. Uh, so what Ronnie Aya did basically is I'm going to hit your ribs and make you stop me from hitting your ribs. And to stop me, you're going to have to put your hand there. And once you have your hand there, boom, you're in, you're in Kimura country. Kimura country. We're all along that side of the rib cage. All I have to do is get my legs free, which he does, sits up, puts it behind the back, which is key, and gets his torque on it. But he brings it into him and gets his torque on it. It's really... Uh, I'll kind of stop there because the rest would really would would need visual, but yeah, it was really beautiful. Um, all right, next fight was uh, Ortiz versus Sandoval. This was on a void list because I just had a a weird feeling like about Sandoval possibly upsetting, and there there were I saw a lot of plays out there on Sandoval, so I guess I wasn't alone on there. Although I didn't play um play Sandoval nor pick him, the pick was Ortiz. Uh, as much shit as I give Ortiz. I'm, Terrible midget jokes and willow jokes that I, I throw his way. Uh, I do say, man, he's one of the more consistent dudes and and, and, is, and is very underrated because he just is very grindy. He's had some close decisions that arguably he lost. And, um, you know, he's just constantly like, chopping, keep on, Lord, keep chopping. Like, yeah, I mean, it's... I can see why you want to fade, you know... You know, fade the guy, <laughs> but uh, you know, from the analyst perspective, you know, he's really consistent, man. He's a really, really well-rounded. Um, he wasn't doing the complete home camp at Tennessee this time, like I said. He was doing the work at CSA, and we've been seeing little, uh, little improvements of that recently. And um, he did here, you know, caught, ca caught uh, the garbage pail kid uh, coming in, right hand check, real quick check left hook. And then you see uh, Sandoval just briefly, like, uh, like mid Rashad Machida kind of like backward stance. And then he comes back and pops him again while he's like, you know, while Sandoval's mid, like, I don't know if my body should fall or stand back up at this point. And pop, pops him again, hits him with another two for good measure, gets the separation, and then does his mean mugging around the, around the cage. So prop store tease. Hopefully he gets a big fight next as far as flyweight goes. Big fights in the flyweight division go, I should say. And hopefully he comes out and whether win or lose, um, shows more of his improvements, you know. Uh, good on him. Uh, then the prelims close with our last uh, parlay piece for Manson Scott. Kind of like I said before, man. It was just uh, giving as much cra crap as I give Scott for a guy kind of just being there. Um 
I, I feel his game was underrated, but again, the problem was that Hermanson was just technically a notch up in every category. And his, even though it didn't really come to fruition this time, his rest, his rest spot, his safety spot, that is Scott's safety spot, is the clinch. Also the spot where Hermanson makes his money. But Hermanson uses his footwork, um, doesn't trade longer than he needs to because I, that's the one thing that Hermanson, uh, I'm still you know confident, but uh, I'll hit him on the ground against guys, but... Uh, I do want to see him against the better strikers because, you know, he usually generally kind of will have a movement edge over guys and that'll help him a lot in the striking department. It did here because he sets up a really nice shot off it. Uh, gets Scott down. Um, let me see what I have in my notes here. Um, yeah, gets him down and the Scott craftily goes for a triangle attempt against the cage and it's like usually it's a bad spot to go for him because you don't have the leverage to cut your angles and finish. Um, a lot of submissions against the cage, especially triangles. But for that reason, that might have been why guys like Hermanson um, was sleeping on that attempt because he's like, ah, he's not going to get anything here. So, you know, my radar is going to focus on other things. And then, he, you know, you get caught in triangle. But Hermanson shows good defense. Not my particular favorite defense, but a real common defense you see drilled in many gyms where um, someone's got the triangle lock. You put your head pressure in, keeping your shoulder away from your neck in the process of not so much hand fighting, but kind of doing a real emphatic hands inside the bicep. You kind of want to keep them there when you're fighting inside someone's guard to stay out of these submissions in the first place. But when someone has the triangle locked up, um, if you can get that inside hand inside the bicep control, in other words, putting your hands physically on their biceps, which keeps their arms from adjusting your arms across your body or grabbing your head to pull down to finish the choke, because that's what they need to close it off. They need your arm across your body and to pull your head down and cut. And more importantly, the quiet killer is the angle cutting. It's the adjustments. Anybody can catch a triangle. We saw Scott catch a triangle that we're talking about here. It doesn't matter. It's the adjustments. It's the adjusters. That's where you make the money on the triangle. Those are the money makers when it comes to the triangle choke. Uh, so, you know, Hermanson does a really good job at stopping that momentum because if you pin someone's, you know, uh, back there and, you know, Pin the, you know, uh, inside hand uh, bicep control, pin their arms apart. They can't pull your head down. They can't pull the arm across. But more so, when he does that, um, you'll see that Scott's ass is kind of in the air because if you posture up but pin them down at the same time, you're doing two uh, counteracting motions, right? You're posturing upwards to the sky but pinning them downwards to the mat. So what happens if they want to keep their legs locked is that what they sacrifice is that their ass goes up in the air with you if they want to continue to keep their legs locked and continue to at least give hope that they can finish that triangle. And you'll see that once his ass goes up, you first of all, you lose a lot of leverage there and your, your hips are off the ground like that. Like Hips off the ground can be good depending on certain situations of what you're going for, but in that particular situation where, where, where all your limbs and your shit's all locked up, you're gaining no leverage there. Furthermore, you see Hermanson slide his knee under that space that is now lifted uh, between Scott's ass and the mat, and now that kind of kills any type of uh, traction um, or any kind of angle cutting because now you have this infraction between your ass and the mat that is an uncomfortable thigh that is kind of dictating uh, you know dic dictating how, how you rest um, 
from there, you can kind of shrug and free yourself, and that's what you see Hermanson does because now he's taking away the base leverage by sliding his knee under the ass. He's already neutralized the threats of Scott's arms, shakes himself free. Now he's in side control and can kind of cook his way to his back, goes to... Uh, does the same thing we were talking about before, kind of... Uh, I'm not sure if we... Was it before... I was talking about wrist feeds. I'm not sure which fight it was, but Hermanson does a wrist feed, you know, uh, d d does a real br uh, brief uh, wrist feed there and uh, uses it to pass, Gets to, eventually gets to mount, um, and it looked real familiar to the uh, Alex Nicholson fight, you know, punches his way, gets to stop. Really awesome stuff, and again, me being a fan of self-deprecation and people, especially with the <laughs> with the DC thing and seeing how, how cruel people were, like, to see here these guys like Rinaldi come out and say, hey, man, it's fucking... It's rough, you know. I, to, uh, I went back in tears after I, I, I lost these fights, wondering if I could even do these things, these struggles, these guys. Each guy has their own struggle and story, and Hermanson just admitting in his post-fight going, I have, a, you know, a real anxiety issues coming out here and this and that. And you hear that about some guys, but you never hear it from them. You kind of hear it post-tense, past-tense, or I've worked through it, and then it's through the commentation. So it's very... It, you make yourself vulnerable no matter what you put out there these days. Just pure in fact, even if it's nothing that should be you should you should be proud of, and it shouldn't make be something that you're vulnerable. Someone's gonna twist it or spin it that way. That's just the world we live in. But so, to especially to see a fighter just in the midst of it, still trying to deal with it, but also moving forward, going can't wait to face top ten and move up the ranks. Like I love seeing guys, you know, have honesty like that and just uh, admitting it, and then it kind of makes sense what we're talking about. We talk about, you know, I talk about how high I'm on this guy, Hermanson. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, even before his debut, and I'll actually reference him to guys like that, guys that are I'm high on for their debut and for what reasons. And it kind of made that sample size of his fight with Cesar Fajera kind of strange. Cause you're like, well, what happened there? It's kind of, and you hear him address these things, and he didn't make an excuse or even mention the Cesar fight. You know, all class by Jack. But you do hear these things and wonder, hmm, maybe that, 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 that was a fight where the anxiety was kind of um, getting at him. Because dude's a... Dude's a talented grappler. Uh, all right, well, uh, yeah, gets a TKO round one, and that cashes. So the parlay piece was good. Saved my ass. Um, I parlayed that with an over. Uh, that comes later in the card. But on that beat, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back to unpack the main card of UFC Mexico City right here on the Protect Your Neck Podcast. And we're back right here in the Protect Your Neck podcast for the recap the UFC Mexico City and we are on the main card uh we are on, in fact, probably the more controversial fight of the night. Um, though there are articles on the co-main being controversial, we'll get to that accordingly, but I don't think that one was controversial. Um, spoiler alert, I don't really think that one was controversial. This one, though, I, I do think it was. Uh, we had, that was Andre Sukumta versus Alejandro Perez. Uh, the reason why I say controversial is because I believe there were legitimate arguments here on both sides. And in the culture we live in, that's unpopular to say because... Whether any kind of bias, it really doesn't matter, fill in the blank. It's more of a cultural thing. 
where it's one side or no side. You know, and God forbid, you can't be on one side of an argument and, and even give the smallest, legitimate, well-deserved credence to the other side of the argument. I, you know, I don't play that here on the Protect Your Neck podcast. It's a point that I beat to death and try to do my best to either represent the other side and or always represent both sides, play devil's advocate accordingly. But I, I, regardless, I, as much as you can get into the judging criteria, because that, 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 that's another problem, uh, something Luke Thomas talks about as far as the judging criteria, it allows so, for so much leeway either way, allows so much for uh, interpretation, and, 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 and again, allows you to justify these interpretations either way that um, it makes it difficult. It really, you know, in theory, you know, there's certain fights, you know, uh, I believe the one he was talking about that I'm referencing here was like the Handel Bisping, where you can really break down minute by by minute, second by, you know, uh, frame by frame, round by round, and come up with arguments both ways. And that's hard for people to understand, uh, because again, we're we're on this one side or, or the other here. And this one was tough because... I saw the word robbery, and for for one, I'm saying controversial. I do not think this was a robbery. That being said, I did see that word thrown out around a lot, even by people who were on the other side and or bet the other side were saying, you know, I had but this was a robbery. You know, pro fighters to random Joes. So for what that's worth, but me, just just so we get it straight before we get to the the dissection of this one, I don't think it was a robbery at all. Um, it was a it was it was a was a close fight, but it's also it's also very frustrating because it brings up these issues of judging where the argument for people arguing Perez is like, hey, I thought Perez won. Sukumstash should have done more. He relied on the knockdowns, although it's confirmed he's the only person in the UFC ever to score three knockdowns and not get a victory, which is kind of crazy and mind-boggling. But, uh, you know, he sat back and didn't do didn't do um, enough. And ultimately, as you'll see here when we get to the the end of the breakdown of this one, uh, I feel the same way in that, in that as far as that side of the argument goes. Like, yeah, he definitely, there, there, there's spots where he could have done more and probably should have. The problem is, like I tweeted, is that just because a lot of the criticism is these judges don't understand grappling, or they give too much credence to a takedown, or they don't understand grappling, so they give too much credence for a takedown. They come from boxing. The 10-9 system is broken, and so are these judges who come from boxing, and they're boxing judges. They don't judge leg kicks. A lot of these are credible, and a lot of these are long, especially been following sport like me for a while. A lot of these have their place and have their seasons and you know uh, have their chapters as they've gone along through the sport, but... The even more fucked up part is when you even peel back further, just because they're from striking doesn't mean they're from doesn't mean they understand the striking either. And that's something that I see when I see these delineating opinions. And this fight's kind of a perfect one where I'm a volume guy. I'm real big on volume. I'm a fan on volume strikers. I'm a fan on guys that maybe aren't even the best strikers, but they're gritty and they have certain intangibles, especially when you're looking for betting angles. Like, you love these dudes um, who who can put out those volume and those numbers. They're not necessarily a knockout guy. They're not, not anything flashy. But they're workmen, and they get the job done. And you could definitely classify Perez under that, even though I'm not. You, you've heard before. I'm not the biggest fan. Uh, I actually, I'm not, I'm not too impressed. And we'll make kind of the arguments that are actually supported by the numbers. People will use the numbers for their arguments, which is another thing that's kind of dangerous because one, the numbers kind of can paint a false picture, and then two, if you're just using numbers to make your argument because you don't maybe understand the nuances of striking, I'm not trying to sound like an elitist or an asshole saying that. I'm just be, being honest. Then it becomes a problem too because you're just pointing to, pointing to things um, 
and not really understanding the uh, you know the full breadth of the picture. And whether you're a fan or kind of back on point here to the judges that I'm talking about, even judges that come from striking backgrounds, like they get it wrong too. Um, I, I don't follow boxing. I don't expect y'all to either. So maybe we only hear about the bigger ones, like the Bradley Pacquiao kind of decisions and stuff like that. But point is they mess up too. And we can see a striking exchange where one guy might be landing more throughout the maybe the overall round. But if you're just simply judging on that criteria, not judging where they are, where the fight's taking place, who's dictating the... Um, not just who's getting the better of the exchanges and landing the more quality shots versus volume, but who is dictating wh- uh, where these fights happen, you know? Who's pushing who back and then dictating when the exchanges happen? And uh, throughout most of the fight, even the spots where he wasn't throwing or, or, and or could have thrown more, Sukumthal was that guy. He was coming forward. He was pressure countering, you know? Um, it, he, again, I, I joke and, and call him the poor man's Jose Aldo. Does that mean he's as good as a Jose Aldo? No. Does that mean he's going to have the ceiling to ever as hard as he trains? Probably not. Don't take me literal on that. But aside from the kid being a freaking, you know, literally almost the same size, an inch taller and a division lighter, a soccer player who throws the left hook leg kick and has the same pressure counter, going to counter wrestle and land the better shots and out technical you style we laud Jose Aldo for. Again, this kid's not doing it anywhere nearly as good at him. But in theory, that's the same style and spirit as what he's doing. And... As I, you know, uh, as you can argue, and as I, as, as I'll argue, I guess, that he was doing effectively here. And uh, again, uh, some of these things were close. So if you wanted to lean Perez, I'm not condemning that. This again, this is not a robbery, but I believe that if you had people, you know, whether it was through experience or there's, you know, other analysts. Again, you don't have to. You don't have to participate in martial arts to know what you're looking at. There's a lot of people from educated fans to other analysts who do amazing jobs. Um, but I, I think if you put those people as opposed to just the normal set of eyes, I think you would get two different reads where some people would be like, well, this guy was mixing in grappling too and he was giving more looks and he did a, a bunch of leg kicks, which I believe the leg kicks were the biggest thing we'll get to. That was the, that was the biggest success, my biggest takeaway because I went back and watched this fight three times. The last couple, uh, last two and three rounds, um, multiple times, because those were the closer rounds in question. Um, but yeah, Alejandro landed good leg kicks throughout. And by the way, round one, I I wasn't sold that it was a 10-8, but it was a possibility. It was acknowledged by many other people that I saw score it, acknowledged by the commentary team. For what it's worth, in rewatch, I don't score it a 10-8 for Sukumpa. I actually lean more 10-9, despite the two knockdowns, despite the two rules. Could it have been a 10-8? And what I, uh, of course, I would have welcomed that. I, I, I did do a straight. Uh, a straight play, which is the, the betting bias here. So add that salt here correctly, even though I feel that uh, um, that I give an honest recap because I just obviously just watched the fight so many times. But uh, again, in defense of the Perez side, I scored only I scored ten nine for that first round. Um, the problem is the reason why I think Sukumthal won, or at least there is an argument at the very least that he won, was that it came down to this, the round two. Um, that seems to be the round in question. Uh, which I agree, but I, I scored that round for Sukumthaw, and then I scored the third round for uh, Perez, so that would have been a 29-28 um, for Sukumthaw, but obviously it went the other way in the split. And the, ra- the round that kind of comes into question, sorry if I, I seem all over the place here, but the round kind of comes into question is the second one, where they 
not, they don't both score a knockdown because only officially uh, Sukumfala scored a knockdown, which I think is correct because he scores a knockdown. Um, what is it? Yep, he scores his knockdown first, and then Perez. It looks like he scores a knockdown at like a minute forty-five. Um, because Sukumthal is just pressuring, picking shots, and hitting hitting good ones. Uh, Perez is. This is the round about midway through the round. You start to see from the left hooks because he's went to the body. He loves those left hooks to the body. Sukumthal. He'll get guys looking to the body, and then he'll go up top. Um, and uh, he was just finding his rhythm, like. And like people like, oh, he was taunting and this and that, and it was kind of tough because the commentary. I love standing this and that, but they were they were they were calling this very favorably for Perez. Where, um, okay, hold that thought. They were calling it for Perez, uh, starting about round two, where I'm talking about. So Sukumthal gets the knockdown, and then Perez gets the knockdown. Uh, uh, later but it wasn't a clean knockdown like Perez actually his cleaner shots came before and after the knockdown and commentary didn't credit those even though they were being very favorable to Perez's side which is why I think so many people now in hindsight were so backlashy about hey Perez won I think Perez I didn't think Sukumthal because it's so easy to kind of parrot like what the uh what the commentary is right I mean we all do it. I do it too it's 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 natural so you hear it it's embedded in your narrative not everybody's going back with a sober eye the next day and watching it multiple times like me so I'm not uh, putting anybody to the torch or trying to hold anybody to the same standards, standards much less trying to say that I'm right, but I, 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 again, um, you can go back and rewatch and check what I'm saying here uh, and, and compare my notes to yours, uh, please, uh, at the MM Analyst, if you come up with something different. Um, and again, your perspective can be different, but I'm trying to base my perspective and arguments here around the facts. And the only reason why I'm arguing Sukumthal, not because I played him, but because that's the controversy at hand, and that is... So that's what I want to try to explain that side. I mean, he, uh, at least he could do. It's not, the guy, the guy goes home half a paycheck, fucking lighter. So uh, at least he could do is try to try to get get his perspective in there too. Although I do want to give credit because one thing again I'm picking up through this whole time, which can make the argument is Perez is landing really hard leg kicks. Now he didn't get Sukumthaw to react to them once really, um, aside from Sukumthaw kind of shaking one off no, which could have meant it hurt. But you never see a hammer in his step. You never see him. It never affects his motion. Uh, or anything like that. And uh, on the knockdown, I was going to say that he gets, uh, Perez gets on him. Uh, Sukumthal actually gets him in a tie clinch because Sukumthal enters space on him. He gets clipped by a right hand, but, it, you know, counters him right after, so he was fine. But it was a good right hand by Perez. Uh, that was the one I was talking about, that commentary miss. Sukumthal gets him in a tie clinch, and he goes to knee him, and that's when uh, Perez hits him with the right hand, and he goes down. But not just being on one leg makes it easier to be knocked down, obviously. Uh, Sukumthaw's right knee was up. So if your right knee's up, that means you're going to be especially weak if you get pushed to your right side. And a right hand, trajectory-wise, would push you to your right side where you're lacking a post at the moment because your right knee, that should be your post to balance in that situation, is up trying to knee your opponent. So it was like perfect shot, perfect time. That's why Sukumthaw was smiling with his eyes up. Um, probably should have hustled to get to his feet faster. That being said, um Literally one minute later on the dot, he's up to his feet already, uh, which was kind of strange because Perez, not only does he not throw any punches, but he pushes Sukumthaw to the fence and helps him up. Like I was like, man, Perez should have just kept him down there. He would have sealed the round, but the fact that he didn't strike, advance, pass, attempt anything, then literally helps him up to where 
Now Sukumthaw is up to his feet a minute later. Now there's 45 seconds left in the round. I don't think that was enough to steal the round. He's going to have to still make statements in the uh, 45 seconds. And you see, um, and you and you see him uh, get up to the fence, and uh, Sukumthaw's in the game. He, he he checks, hits him to the body, and then uh, I believe it's the second round where. God damn! It, I swear, if you throw, if you throw, whether you land them or rock your opponent or not land them at all, in some cases, uh, spinning elbows like judges love. Like they'll pull out and just beat off right there and give you the round. Because I swear, I swear to God, like anybody who throws spinning elbows always win the round. <laughs> it's like something I don't know what it is. And Perez hits him pretty good with a spinning elbow. Like you hear it, but again, no reaction from Sukumthaw. And then he comes back and hits him with a hard check left. Commentary says nothing of it, and even when they go to the highlight in between rounds, they cut away before because the the elbow hits. And the reason why probably didn't hurt him that much is because he was moving away with it, like he was with a lot of his shots, um, and then comes and uses it to come back and load and come back with a left hook. Again, real technical boxing, Muay Thai. You see these things, especially in boxing, where guys are kind of rolling with shots and and because they want to set up that counter. The problem with that is. You know you're the better striker, you're confident in your defense, and you know that you need a guy to bite, but the fact that you let him throw two or three strikes, even if they're not landing or even one of them kind of skims and you come back with a more quality shot, you were depending on the, on the not the audience because they have no say in it, you know, but the judges um, to understand what they're seeing. They have to really know striking at a high level. You have to really be able to catch these things live, ladies and gentlemen. So it's really hard for the judges to do, and it's also obviously hard for the general spectator to do. That's why not just the judges are on one side, but you'll have fans going, wow, but Perez threw more. I'm like, yeah, he didn't look confident, land heavy, and he was on his back foot most of the round, you know? And I would like to think that we're moving away from the Diego Sanchez era of forward pressure just winning you things, but I also believe slop striking shouldn't get you things either. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of volume strikers, but... Alejandro Perez, I'm not trying to take away anything from him, but let's be honest, he's real borderline between volume and slop because he's not putting together more than one or two at a time. He just has that kind of like retard strength, relentlessness, where he's just going to keep going at you even though he keeps eating shots, which he was, and he's going to just sit there and be stubborn and, and try to mix with you. And you know this because, again, you can go back and watch Javier Mendez always arguing with him in the corner. Like his corner's like it gets mad at him for it, you know, because he doesn't listen Punches after Bell doesn't listen to the refs. Dude's just like this angry penguin pecker out there just pecking away. Like, you know, like, and props to him, man. He's winning these decisions. I mean, try not to take away from it. But at the same time, it's a lot of slop. And again, people that want to point to the numbers, are like, look, he outstroke him, bro. And again, the numbers are misleading. But the numbers actually would, would, would strengthen what I'm saying here because – Unless it's a real technical and certain style of striker where they're using kind of whether it's a kind of a karate stylist, a volume karate traditional striker, or the boxing stylist where they're like a volume puncher like a Diaz where they're throwing the light one-twos to set up those occasional hard shots, then you will see a big difference between the significant strikes and the total strikes, right? Thrown to landed. There's a big gap. But when you see a lot of slop striking, because you have to remember these total strikes, when they're in the clinch and they're throwing those even the knees that are crappy or little body shots that mean nothing or you're on top and you're doing those pitter-patter body-body head, which referees are hip to. I mean, I was just in a recent rules meeting, even at the amateur level, and they were like, if you go body-body head, that is not enough. 
If we tell you to work and you go body by the head, we are not falling for that. That is not keeping your position. Like refs are onto that. Everybody's kind of onto these things, but we still count these things in these basic numbers and we give these numbers to the public and it can be very misleading. Um, so all those little shots, even when Perez was on his back, um, you know, throwing a shot or this or that, like all those little pitter patter things get counted. So that's why you see a huge stretch of 97 total strikes landed compared to Sukumthal's 44. Oh, oh, you know, that's why it can get kind of great. But when we look at significant strikes, well, he only literally only outlanded him by one. 44 landed for Perez, significant strikes, 43 for Sukumthal. That's a big stretch between 97 and 44 to 44 and 43. That's because that 97, that's a slop number. There's a lot of slop strikes. Not They weren't doing a lot. Um, that's why there wasn't any marks on Sukumthal. There wasn't... Um, much reactions from him except for the times where he was taunting and by the way uh Perez actually uh, on second you know the the crowd was the crowd obviously helps the comment uh, the commentary I think they sway the commentary too because again I, I praise Stan I'm not criticizing Stan one bit but you hear guys kind of talk uh commentate and call a fight really favorable to one person because he at one point they go in the second round like oh he, uh, Perez oh Tsukumtao's gonna have to steal this round I'm like really is he because he got held down for a minute and he won the rest of the round uh, out landed the body shots, landed the harder you know um, um, shots to close the round. Had had uh, Perez on the back foot, taking breaths. So, like I don't, I don't know. And then, um, yeah, sorry, I'm all over this place. Spent too much time in this fight. Uh, but yeah, third round, um, I scored that for Perez. Uh, on my tweets, I was like, oh, maybe he possibly stole the end, and I, I didn't think that he stole it. But in rewatching it, I could see how he did because. The last 45 seconds, I give to Sukumthal. He, he came at him and started landing some, some actually some quality shots, but unfortunately makes the poor move and goes for the flashy kick, lands on his back, and doesn't immediately pop up and ends around on his back, which is bad. And the commentators say it's bad, and it is bad. But then I remember someone that came at me on Twitter was like, that was the crux of their argument. They're like, he landed his back on the, on his, on how can someone steal a round if they're on their back, bro? And I'm like, Okay, I get your argument. I didn't say he stole the round. I said maybe he could have, and for what it's worth, I actually scored it for Perez. And if we're going to talk about him being on his back, he actually went to his back on his own accord for what it's worth. And essentially, I forget what the rebuttal was, but it was like, but still, bro. Like, And again, so it's like, when you're going arguing just basic and then now, you know, significant, look at those total strikes or look, he ended the round. You know, when you're making the crux of your argument off those things, it's really tough. I'm not trying to argue those things, but there is a de- there is a definite argument for Sukumthaw in rounds one and two. I scored a 29-28 for him. Some people had a 10-8. Again, you could justify a score 29-28 for Perez, but, uh, and I'm, oh, man, I really hope this didn't come out that I shit on Perez too much, man, because uh, the dude's an overachiever, and you got to give credit to those guys, especially as a better, you love overachievers, because those are the guys who are going to come through as a dog, or maybe give you a better price than the bookmakers realize they're giving you as a low-end favor to pick them. He's a definite overachiever, credit to Perez, but let's be honest, man, if we're being analytical and... From a technical perspective, I'd be lying if I said I was impressed. All right, moving on from that one. Credit to Perez. Uh, again, no robbery there. No robbery. Um, credit to Perez. Next fight, uh, Evans versus Alvi. Uh, since I went long on the last one, let's just go short on this one. Alvi wins the decision. Evans is uh, said my said my breakdown. Where is he at between a uh, former champion and shot fighter? We're part of the spectrum. I think we kind of got that answer, man. Uh, which sucks because. Um, Evans is great, man. Go look at that guy's resume. You know, a lot of these, especially New York fans, and just, wow. 
from being the heavyweight winner all the way forward. So, all right, move on from that one. Joe Bam versus Price. Man, I got to give it up to Price. I got to give it up to Price, um, who, by the way, creepiest, if we're doing creepiest mugshot game, guys, UFC.com, the mugshot's on there, for sure, Nico Price. He looks super rapey with that fucking creepy, grinny smile. And I feel bad saying for that because I actually became a Nico Price fan after this. And, uh, again, this second straight play, first one I dropped on, um, uh, thought, but that wasn't sour, sour marbles. That was a, a fight with a lot of interesting points. That's why I gave it the appropriate time. Uh, and to show that it's not sour marbles, I'm a huge Joe Ban fan. Had money on him, but I'm impressed with Nico Price. I'm a Nico Price fan now, and a lot of it because despite me calling him the rapiest looking dude on the <laughs> on the uh, mugshot roster, he his his post fight was endearing. Man, the dude just wanted to get back to his wife and kids, and you could just see the happiness. And just a big, you know, rugged, rough, broish Floridian destroyer. To see a soft side like that, ah, oh, I love dichotomies like that. You know your boy Dan Tom here, so he brings it like a warrior. Um, you know, albeit not the most technical stuff, very bread and butter stuff. I mean, it was a basic, you know, catch the leg kick, right hand straight down the pipe. And Alan Joban did have his left hand up and did kind of have his head off to the center, but it's just it's a game of inches. And um with his trend that was already admittedly pretty, you know, bad as far as getting getting tested. He got tested early there, went down. Uh, Stan, amongst others, thought it was a bad stoppage at first, but I immediately knew it wasn't. Like, you could kind of just see that not just the trend of Joe Bam, but, like, I could even... I wouldn't even be surprised if he was getting rocked in, like, training camp leading up to this. I mean, like, his le- life just left him. It was a clean shot, and... Price is a hard hitter, so taking nothing away. and It's not like it should should be surprising that it did that to him, but there are certain levels to it where, okay, that should have hurt him, but that, like, took his life away, like a Yoel Romero, a Leo Machida elbow with your head against the mat and nowhere to go, except this was a counter that he had his head kind of slipping offline to and kind of had his hand kind of up, but didn't matter, man. did not matter. So um, it, it's tough as much as I want to give Nico Price more praise here and I'm an admitted fan from him from this. Uh, from a critical and analytic perspective, you, you can't really say there's a lot to take away from it because, again, his game's kind of bread and butter anyways, even though he was a little more measured than he was in previous performances, which was good. Uh, you know, uh, he still didn't get a chance to show much against a guy who, again, was kind of trending. If that's the way he was going to lose, that's the way he was going to lose. Bye. So a little hard to tell, but excited to see Nico Price nonetheless. So good on him. Good on you if you were on him. Oh, excuse me. Burp there. Uh, a man, MMA Kelton. Shout out to Kelton. I know he was uh, one of the one of the people I know that was on uh, Price I saw there in the Twitter sphere, uh, putting some decent plays on him. So props to you and whoever else was on him. Um, next fight. This was the controversial one to a lot of people, but not to me, man. I had Marcos, and I do stand by that. Again, my picks were obviously wrong a lot tonight, but the analysis, which uh, some of you, by the way, for shouting out, I really do appreciate appreciated uh give you some uh, give you your shouts on twitter there really appreciate you guys uh giving me ups on the analysis even though the picks right which again I, I know i complain about a small minority of you but uh oh i i spe- I, I i i skipped uh bravo bendene by the way y'all know uh ducked into the liver kick that was the left kick that was going to be pr- trouble even though i saw it going to the liver ducks and gets into the head uh, speaking of complaining about a small minority of fans, someone actually came at me for that one. And was like, "Oh, you got you picked Bravo, huh?" And I'm like, "Of all things that come at me for getting wrong, like a low sample size, borderline one debutante slash basic debutante versus biggest favorite of the card versus, uh, by the way, uh, the prop cashed of 
the under at dog money. Like that was the wrong thing to come at me for. So if, in case you didn't know, Dan Thomas had real low tolerance. Probably not that I should uh, should be less snappy. I apologize for those of you who I do give friendly fire to. Because a lot of educated motherfuckers out there, and I appreciate you. Don't know who who you are. Y'all know I love you. But there are a couple bad apples, and let's just say I've not been afraid to snap at them. Back to the original point. Even though I do complain about a small minority, so many of you guys are so fucking smart. Because, again, you can tell you're actually all reading where it's like, hey, man, that analysis was straight up. Even though the pick was wrong, I avoided it because, like you said, even though uh, I was on Grasso, you were on Marcos, this was going to be a close fight. And that was the thing. Whereas other people, just whether they had a bet on uh, Grasso or not, would just hand in the flag. This is the pick. And it's like, I get it. I get it, man. Like, for what it's worth, I'm a huge Grasso fan. If you listen to prior podcasts, it was real high on her. Picked her against Herrig, and Herrig woke me up, and... And, and and I learned from that. Picked her against uh, Shitter uh, Girl. Sorry, just kidding. Quiche. Love, love you, Justine. Sorry. But uh, no, neither here nor there. But like, yeah, I mean, man, it, it, again, it's not that either or mentality. It's something I really try to get away from here on this podcast. So I appreciate you all that do that too because at the end of the day, it's going to benefit you. You know, if you can decipher a situation, see the pros and, and, and cons and exercise discipline in the end of the day, Good on you. Um, I did, you know, guiltily admit, and I did admit this on Twitter as well. Um, I did say it on the last podcast. If you were looking for a play, the safest one was the over. I did end up, I, I did end up fucking with that. To put it in the terms, of Eddie Huang, I ended up fucking with that, and uh, that saved my ass. Uh, parlaying that with uh, Hermanson and Yaya. But yeah, man, um, split decision. I just had it uh, for um, first round clear for Grasso. I believe second round clear for Marcos. I hit hit some nice takedowns, not just off the catch kicks, but like even uh, hit a nice you know uh, uh, you know outside trip uh, reap leg reap sweep <laughs> where she scoops her you know scoops up Grasso's uh, right leg with her left leg as she's against the cage, and then uses her head as a lever from the opposite side to push and complete the takedown. Basic but very clever stuff from Marcos paid off really well. I liked how she rode top. Um, Grasso timed her well, man, when she went from half guard to, to go to mount. You see Grasso hip bumper. But the problem was Grasso wouldn't have her underhooks in the right spot. She kept, like, grabbing to stall. And which, again, she showed in past fights and even in this fight. Uh, Marcos, again, I didn't say she's a top echelon grappler, but she'd at least be able to give her a taste for that division, which is kind of weak. So I didn't really say much. But it's true. She was going to give her a taste of it, and she did, right? As second Brown was proof of it, you can kind of see the error in techniques where even though Grosso, again, was really underrated, she can create scrambles. Didn't have the confidence in it. She was going to grab the head and just grab for a stand-up. Very real basic, right? I mean, not that I'm against that. Sometimes that is the best tactic given the dynamic of certain matchups. Definitely the best tactic. But you could see she had more to offer. Like, And it's if she put her, if she committed her, you know, underhooks in the right spot, that she would have come up on top on some of these scrambles to where even though Marcos goes from top half to mount and she bumps her, the fact that she had her you know, grosso from bottom, had her arms wrapped around, clasp around the head for posture instead of as an underhook, you know, when she comes up, um, you see Marcos is still in a position where she can actually take the back, which quickly ends up being a mount um, because... Again, the underhook blocks the backdoor escape to your back. There's, there's multiple purposes the underhook for offensive and defensive. So the table is quickly turned. Um, anyways, it doesn't really matter because Grasso comes back strong um, in that third round. Uh, Marcos did get, like I believe, like a minute of top control or so, um, which I believe is why people might have initially thought she won the round. And I might have thought she won the round. I think I even said like my lean was there, but I knew that my bias for one 
was toward Marcos because that's the pick, right? And also, the judging was already questionable and with the hometown thing and slash the questionable judging leading toward the hometown thing in previous outcomes, well, I essentially was probably going to go to Grosso, and it did, so I had no issues with that. And then on the rewatch, even less issues with that. So that's why I said to me, I know there's like people saying it was controversial, especially Brandon Marcos. She's like thinking about doing an appeal. Uh, I pick Marcos here, man. I don't, I don't think it's controversial at all. Um, so impressive for Grasso, especially if she wasn't at 100% because she was on antibiotics because she had a, as Todd Grisham so eloquently put out on the FS1 broadcast, a urinary tract infection. Which I'm like, Grisham, you could have just used UTI, you know? Like, we don't, <laughs> poor girl, like, why do you have to put her in that light? She's about to fight. Like, put that image, you know? I mean, are we trying to, are we trying to up our numbers for the Japan demographic? Well, tell me more about this. You're in there, it's wrecking fiction, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, I'm part Japanese. I can make fun of those people, right? But no, just kidding. But yeah, that was kind of weird. I'm like, just say UTI, man. <laughs> she uh, had gonorrhea for the past three days and was on antibiotics. Stan, back to you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the main event. Uh, Pettis Moreno. This again, um, not so much controversy, but I guess I could see where because... Essentially, it was like 49-46. I didn't agree with even the judges here where it was going against the hometown guy and probably the right guy won, in my opinion, because I'm a big body of work guy. And the body of work um, slash flow of the fight, Sergio Pettis all day. No question about it. Which, by the way, props to all my degenerate friends um, that were on Sergio Pettis. I know quite a few of you, you were, and I wanted to be with you. I know my man, Daniel Levy, shout out to Best Fight Picks, Half the Battle was on him. And if I'm not even sure if it was on my podcast or his, but after that, uh, Rodriguez Penn, um, I was probably on his podcast, yeah, because I think it was after Rodriguez Penn, where it was uh, Sergio Pettis' last fight. Um, me and Levy were both high on, on Pettis, and during the recap, we're talking about kind of elaborating more on why. So you know I, I've been high on him, too, and I wanted to join my brothers in arms and playing him, but this was just a tight match, man, where it was like... I was definitely on the wrong side of the pick, obviously. But, again, um, it's not one of those picks. That, there are plenty of picks, believe me, where I'm like, what were you doing, Dan? You dumbass. Believe me. This wasn't one of them, even though I was wrong, because the analysis was right. It was either the opportunism of Moreno or the rhythm process and uh, more well-roundedness, provenness of Pettis. Um, and by that nature, there was much more checkbox, uh, especially me being a big process guy against Moreno, where it was more opportunism. And so some people, I don't think people really, not really, you know, came at me or anything like that. But you just see the the general like opinions and stuff. You're like, hey, you know, people that were on uh, Pettis going, how'd you, how'd y'all not see like this kid only had certain ways to win, and that was true. He only had certain ways to win. But like I said in the breakdown, those ways I felt would be very potent. Now they were much less potent on the feet, which I was counting on less. But everything on the ground was there from his power double to the catch kicks. Moreno showed he could do both, even though not as much as, as he would have liked, obviously, because Pettis did an excellent job with his footwork. Little things that, you know, really hard to see, the way he angles and gets in and out. He's always hedging his bets a much better way than guys like Frankie Edgar have done, in my opinion. He's almost doing kind of opposite steps of uh, Edgar, if you really look in depth to kind of the patterns and stuff. And, of course, it's going to be different because Edgar is a much different style, whereas, you know, Pettis comes from the more traditional pull and return um, style, uh, style mixed with the boxing. Which is why I'm such a such a fan of it. But uh, just I was scared here, man. I got scared away. I think that's what it was. I think that's why a lot of people, whether it was 
you know, usually it's more, I don't want to say, like, we're educated fans and sound all elitist or bullshit, but, you know, a lot of times the opportunistic guys kind of capture the imagination of a typical audience member, uh, which can lead them to pick opportunism, where, you know, you, that's where the picks where usually your boy here is, like, going with the process guy, right, and, and, and being Mr. Contrarian. Well, this time, maybe it's my contrarian nature, maybe it's the fact that, like, uh, um, I was talking to my man, uh, my man Zane Simon over there, a bloody elbow, and I was like, I just, when I really like guy styles too, I'm also very hyperly critical. One, because I know bias is at play when you're picking, and the way I deal with bias, I kind of translate over from the years of teaching martial arts um, through the years growing up, and when I would teach, I would all, uh, <laughs> as being one of those star pupil kind of kids myself, and being one of the, just, just by nature, being one of the few kids that was committed, whether it was from when I was seven or eight years old to when I was in high school or after. Um, you know, maybe not not lately. If you know me in the past couple of years, as far as MMA, but growing up, I was definitely Mister Discipline, and uh, would notice that the teachers that I would I would gain almost like father like father figure like relationships with, um, especially just kind of coming from the family I came from, was really easy to kind of have that dynamic with instructors. But uh, I would notice that I would get kind of real tough love, right? And there's real kind of a lot of tough love in general when you look at the way kind of traditional martial arts is run and the disciplinary, but like military, right? And then in that respect, and so at least places that I went to at the time uh, I came up in. And uh, I'm sorry, what am I getting at here? Um, discipline, discipline. Jesus, your boys, your boys, fucking ranting and rambling. Um, oh my god. Wow, dead air is not good, Dan. Uh, but, but, but yeah, you get a certain, you get a certain amount of, uh, <clears throat> uh, discipline, uh, coming up through the ranks and whatnot. Oh yeah. Teaching, teaching and, and biases. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. And, uh, and you learn that, oh, they're harder on you because they expect more of you. And also they can't show favoritism. So it's kind of a thing that protects them, but also encourages you in a weird fucked up way. I don't know. I still don't fully understand it, but I tried to implement it when it became my turn to teach. So, uh, there are certain kids that I really liked, but I would also hold them to higher standards. And some of it's really basic. So, like, you have a whole class and, you know, um, you're having, the, you know, say a whole class of purple belts. Okay, everybody do your, your kata. I want you guys doing kata six. Let's see your kata six. And maybe there's the, this, the, the, the sloppy, half-retarded kid. You know, there's probably a billion things you could correct. But God bless him. He's out there trying. <laughs> you're not going to fucking grill him, right? You say... All right, Billy, maybe give him a couple corrections. Be like, much better, good. Even though he didn't really correct it as good as he should have, you see that he made the effort to correct it. So that's kind of the grading scale you hold upon Billy. Whereas, you know, little Chen, I don't know why I'm fucking uh, using racial names here, but little Chen, you know, comes out there and you know he's fucking tight with all this shit and he's kind of uh, higher amongst his class. Well, I'm going to be a little harder on little Chen. I'm going to be hey. Keep your arm tucked a little bit up by the armpit. Keep it tight there. Don't be lazy with that. Keep it tight. A little more bend in the knee. All right, good. Continue. And you're a little more harder on them because you want to see them do better. So I, I kind of take the same thing in analysis. I'm always naturally harder on guys I like where some people, I thought you liked this guy. What the fuck? I do, man. I, I good luck on your pick. You know, it's, uh, believe me. I just I, could, I had to stay away from this one. And I think just like, uh, not to sound elitist, like the normal crop of fans or spectators, but even people have been watching it for a minute, like myself. Hey, man, I'm not above it, man. I make these same mistakes, which I hope you get when I'm talking about these things. It's not from an elitist thing. It's it's something we're all susceptible to, falling for narrative. And I don't believe it was so much narrative. I believe the analysis was spot on. I was scared for a reason because, man, I tell you, even if you did, did bet Pettis, you're probably sweating that first round because, you know, I scored at 10-8, gets a four, four minutes and 30 seconds control time Moreno does over Pettis, has his back and... 
like I said, for the for for the same reasons because Pet Pettis is really quick to turtle and do these things. And you saw him adjust though in later rounds. You know when he got taken down, he wasn't so quick to give it away. He would stay on his back, but then get up at the opportune time. And so these are the adjustments you want to see for Pettis as he gets older. And goes and makes a title run. And this is stuff we've been waiting to see because that was what was kept me away. Is, is even in that Moraga fight where we, you know, I was just talking about me and Levy were talking about we we're kind of breaking it down. We we're all high on him. But when I had to go back and run it through the cone for this fight, I was like, holy shit, he was giving away takedowns, going for gear, just doing stupid stuff he didn't need to against a guy he was clearly outclassing. I'm like, shit, he's going to do it against the opportunist of all opportunists in this division. And that's what scared me away. And he did show to do it in the first, but to his credit, not only was it beautiful defense and hand fighting by Sergio Pettis, by the way, but he made adjustments, man. He he wasn't so quick to go to that turtle position again. You, you know, he saw him. Yeah, I think commentary made a made a, made, made, made a note on that too. And, uh, and, and yeah, and then the fifth round comes. Now, this is where it kind of gets crazy. Like, I, I, a lot of people had it to draw, and I honestly did too, man, but... It, Here's my theory, like, the fifth round comes and Pettis is outstriking him through the body of a beginning to end, even though Moreno did have a couple moments, you know, I mean, he only landed seven significant strikes to Sergio's 13, 11 total to his 18, one takedown, but he had two minutes and 44 seconds of control time over half the round, and he was, even though I believe getting outstruck throughout the round, was game in those exchanges, and those exchanges were much more tighter than rounds arguably at least, in rounds two, three, and four. So for that reason alone, I believe it was close enough where you could edge that round Moreno. The reason why I think the judges didn't, I don't know exactly what the judges did because the judges' scorecards seem off. I don't think, you know, it seemed like only two of them gave the 10-8, which I guess isn't that harsh of a criticism considering how the judges were. And it is the new thing of scoring, so that's going to take a second to get that curve, right? But, uh... There's a legitimate argument for Moreno could have made round five, but it's like, especially in two of the judges' minds at least, right? Because two of them did end up giving the 10-8, I believe, to Moreno for round one. They had to know that, oh, shit, I gave this kid a 10-8 in round one. If I edge this really close round, even though, like I said in the beginning of this breakdown, Sergio Pez pretty clearly did the better body of work, took most of the rounds, and uh, had the better advantageous ebb and flow in the fight, you know? Um even with the control time uh, Moreno had, which was considerable in the fifth round. If this was a street fight, I would still give the ebb and flow to Pettis. I mean, on all these different check parts, I would go to Pettis. But that's not how we score fights. We have to score them round by round. So it almost puts you in this predicament where it's like, because again, these judges, they're not supposed to judge like this, obviously. I know this. But they're also human, which we all know. And if you really think about well, maybe that doesn't excuse, but there's a reason for these questionable scorecards, right? So uh, it was like, oh man, and maybe you know they already heard, you know, there's already criticism from the hometown decisions and stuff beforehand, and they don't want to be that guy. Like, oh, it looks like you just saved your hometown guy to give him a draw. Like, you know, there's those things, those self-conscious things. I, I wonder if judges. Uh, I should ask the judges that I know actually between uh, Bobby Wambacher and Aaron Menard from Texas there. Uh, their opinions, but like it's like there's a certain human instinct I wonder is there. Like, and I always point to the Joanna Claudia fight, right? The first one, because everyone's like, oh, Claudia should have won. And if you look at it, it's like a round of peace or something, I forget the argument it was. And then you have that tight third round where it's super close, but you kind of got to edge it to Gadelia. And it's like, I want to edge it to Gadelia every time I went back to watch that fight. But you go to like, the, you see the judges almost and be like one of the judges where you have your pencil in your hand because the round's about to end. But then Gadelia really overtly throws a strike after the bell and it's super shitty. And the ref 
Joanna, the crowd who was on Claudia's side, I believe, up until that point, just turn on her and go, ooh, and you see Claudia, even you see her mental like track go from angry, I'm hitting you after the bell, to, oh, fuck, what the fuck did I, do? Did, did I just do? I was wrong. Apologize, apologize, humility, humility, humility. I take that back, I take that back, I take that back. Like, you can see your thought process, right? And I wonder, so my argument is, I wonder as a judge, because even as a big Joanna fan who took her in the rematch and... You know, since then, and yada, 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 even then being objective, I scored that fight for Gedalia, right? So you wonder if the judges are, like, about to write Gedalia, they have the G, and then they see her hit the, throw the light strike, they're like, they start scratching, mm, let's give that one to JJ. You know, I wonder if it was one of those type of things. Either way, even though I technically, if I'm being honest with myself, I did score it a draw, I'm glad they gave it to Pettis, even though I picked Moreno, because I think Pettis won. Man. I think he did the better body of work, and uh, since I didn't have any plays, I was... Part of me, even though my pick was one way, uh, I couldn't help but be happy for all uh, my degenerate fans on Pettis. So congrats if you were on him, and congrats to Pettis, man. I mean, I remember watching one of his, one of his first pro fights uh, against one of the guys who got me into Extreme Couture, who signed up there when it was just not even like open to the public. He was helping build and set up the place, Jimmy Jones. And he fought Jimmy Jones, who in my mind was undefeated at the time. Um, he was a big uh, bantamweight because Jimmy's like 5'11", so he's fighting small Sergio there. And I think Jimmy was like 7-1. and one. His one loss was a loss to Chris Beal, which wasn't a loss if you watch. It was a complete robbery. Robbery. That was a robbery. Uh, so Jimmy was like undefeated at the time. Going against Sergio was undefeated, obviously. And, uh, man, as much as it was hard to watch my boy lose, Sergio just... Put on a put on a show was just like just disguising head kicks and getting knockdowns back then. You know what I'm saying? It was beautiful. That was a fun night. My man Bryce Rutani, my old boxing coach, and uh, got a one punch knockout. Like literally, like it was a heavyweight fight and it was the first punch thrown kind of a thing. But it was where they it wasn't they ran out and it happened. They ran out and kind of circled each other for a second. And the guy, the guy who was facing was real tentative and. He just goes, ah, fuck it, and comes in. And then he just gets countered by my boy Bryce. There was one right hand just as a Mark Hunt walk-off. And Bryce is a big uh, big uh, Maori dude. So uh, he kind of looks the part of Mark Hunt and just literally did a Mark Hunt walk-off. And also, that was the night where you hear about three front kick KOs where that turned and got front kicks into the lexicon after uh, after Anderson Silva did it. What? Three, Dan? No, there was Anderson and Vitor. There was Leoto and Randy. What was the third one? Well, the third one was... Team Alpha Male head coach, Justin Buckholtz, one of his best moments. Unfortunately, came over another Extreme Couture teammate at the time, Steve Lopez, who I actually worked with at that time a bit in the practice streams. He was a really nice dude, and it was hard to see him because I went backstage and after him getting knocked out, just, you know, again, seeing that thrill and agony. Again, people, it's thrill and agony. It's not a special on Fight Pass or UFC does. It's it's a real-life thing that happens, sadly. But uh, but but it was props to Buckholtz, though, on the other side of that. Yeah, he front-kicked knockout Steve, uh, Steve Lopez, a UFC vet there. Uh, cold that was crazy superior cage combat oh, what a what a night there all right that was kind of the recap of that night and uh before we get out of here i wanted to answer kind of um an email that we didn't have time to before but even though i'm kind of running later than i want to hear i still wanted to make time to do it and that was for uh my man travis Dr travis dryden at joker's last laugh um again uh, he, he did it through dm because you know especially with the hashtag Protect Your Neck Podcast and the 140 characters on Twitter. It's a little tough, so feel free to DM if you're following me or message me or comment if it's on Facebook. Again, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the same, at the PYM Podcast. Or if you want to have a, a, a real, real question, a real written question written out, and you want to do it through email, um, the email is Podcast at gmail.com, and I will answer and address those on air and give you credit. And this one's from uh, Travis, and he was essentially just asking, like, 
I'm not going to read the verbatim here, but he was essentially asking what, you know, he didn't want to get overloaded by, you know, Googling, getting technical tips, and he, he really didn't like a lot of what was out there. He felt that some specialist was going to abuse him with words, and I'm like, you realize I'm like one of the wordiest motherfuckers, so man, my, I hope I don't fucking uh, fall into that category, but I'll do my best, because he was really awesome, really really well-written, respectful uh, dude, and uh, yeah, and anything you guys want to ask, whether it's, uh, even if it has not an MMA-related, I'll give you an answer, try to make it entertaining, even comical, especially if it's not MMA-related, but yes, preferably MMA-related, he was asking, what's the basic stuff, you know, if I didn't train martial arts, I, I don't train martial arts, but I like to pick and gamble on fights, um, I want to essentially have some tips that a technical junkie like yourself can pass on to the average, you know, average Joe uh, uh, that I can apply to my research, basic things. And I would say, you know, the, there are certain nu- nuances and it's it, it's crazy because, you know, with all the patterns and puzzle pieces in MMA, like each matchup has a different dynamic. So each matchup has different pro- possible prognoses and, um, you know... Uh, Diagnoses, uh, possible diagnoses to to, uh, to whatever dynamic and, and, and scene we're talking about. So you can get lost in the rabbit hole real quick. In other words, but what I will say is, there is a certain forensic. I also say I've given this advice before, so it's good I get to address it on here too. Kind of can save me from writing future ones. But like I always tell people, just common sense and common sense. More word behind it is there's a for, a way to forensically. Uh, breakdown of fight, forensic fight breakdown, if you will, um, for using forensic science, uh, process of eliminations. Okay. So we have a striker versus grappler. Just start off with the most basic dynamic. Okay. Well, if I'm looking to bet on the striker, uh, I want to see how is he going to, you know, what are his chances of keeping it on the feet? And uh, the basic people's first step is they'll run through the memory bank, uh, and think about any matches they had in the UFC or recent memory where they fought a grappler and how they did, and or they'll go to SureDog, UFC.com, Tapology, whatever site you fancy, all of the above, and look through their record, and maybe there'll be a name that triggers you. Miss, oh, I forgot that he faced this guy. Like, yeah, there's that fight. Or, oh, I forgot that he faced this guy because I didn't even know that he faced this guy because I never saw this fight. Let me go back and watch that. So those that, those basic things. Yeah, you have to do all that first, of course. What's their age? Who's been knocked out? Who's been submitted? And you kind of compare those things for for your basic on paper probabilities. Now, some people can base their own breakdowns and articles off that. And, but if you want to kind of improve and take it to the next level to kind of get past the numbers, because again, the numbers can be deceiving. Um, you have to use numbers as more of a guidance tool as as opposed to a bias tool. And that's kind of hard because they're one inherently the same thing, hence the term confirmation bias. It happens, it exists in all forms of work, and it happens to the best of us. Okay, So I, I'm no better, but I'm just saying things you need to bear aware of when you want to start working your way past the numbers. This is how you do it. These are the things you have to be aware of. And again, it's just basic common sense here. So, okay, you want to bet on the striker. How does he do against takedowns? Okay, well, now you want to look at it more and kind of take in the sample sizes, relevant fights against grapplers. And before you do that, though, you want to say, well, wait a minute, where are the takedowns taking place? So, in other words, we have to go to the grappler's sample size. Well, where does this guy like to get his takedowns? Now, is he a guy that likes to time it? Time his takedowns? That's a little more rare. You have to have guys with good timing, more veteran-savvy, stronger wrestling backgrounds, all of the above. You start seeing guys doing those better, you know, transitionary, reactionary shot type dudes. Most people kind of get their things toward the fence. So, like, for example, Tyron Woodley, Damian Maya, that was one I looked at. I'm, okay, well, how does Tyron uh, 
do against the fence because that was a big flag first of all you know when doing the even though i ended up picking tyron and that was the right pick but that was a big flag first of all because again you're doing forensic science where does grappler like to get his takedowns well he likes to get his takedowns from the fence okay we know that he likes to get a takedown from the fence so when we study the striker we're not just looking at how is he defending takedowns we want to see how he's defending takedowns from the fence that's real basic right i'm not expecting you guys to understand the nuances of the underhooks hoist how their hip positions uh, what the urgency is like and judging their urgency on when they're pushing the head are they sticking to it are they even aware of the head position like that's like level 10 shit, level 9 shit. Don't worry about that. Um, get yourself in a grappling class if you even want to start like getting to those levels. But like, there's a lot of like super basic stuff. Like, You don't have to go in-depth as me to do it. Like, Just because I go in-depth and I pride myself on that doesn't mean it's the only way. It doesn't even mean it's the accurate way. I mean, there's plenty of people that um, are real accurate and, and, and betters and stuff that do well and um, that probably don't even have to... Uh, probably don't look at it the same way I do, or at least I know don't. And it's not a knock on their process. I'm just saying their process is different, and it's an example for you saying that you don't have to have my process. You know, there's, there's real basic forensic skills here that we can all grasp that can help us do those type of things. Now, okay, now let's say that that's a real obvious one, Dan. The grappler, you know, uh, the grappler versus striker dynamic. But what about a striker versus striker dynamic? Okay, well, now we have to look at those dynamics. You know, you want to do, you know, again, you start off from your basic level from comparing their their sure dog profile or something. Oh, this guy's got a bunch of knockouts. Oh, well, this guy's got a bunch of knockouts too. Oh, well, this guy's never been stopped. Ooh, well, this guy's been knocked out a couple times. Ooh, well, this guy, all his losses come by decision. Ooh, well, this guy has a healthy mix of knockouts and decisions. So even though he's been knocked out, he's shown he can win by decision or finish too. So it becomes these quick, you know, uh, even in the first level, you can already start getting swarmed with variables where you're like, okay, well, what are we weighing more? Process with the risk of being knocked out or sheer Tyson knockout power and not being knocked out. But just because he hasn't been knocked out doesn't mean he can't. We just haven't seen him tested yet. Maybe because maybe he hasn't been stopped yet because he's got a, a weaker sample size. If you look at who he's faced, ooh, that's right. Well, not only has he faced not as good as guys, not as good as records, we, we peel back the onion even further and see, well, he hasn't faced striking threats like he's going to face with this guy. And even this guy, he has knockouts. He's not as, but even though he has knockouts, and but is not as potent as a striking threat, he does have more process. So, you know, you kind of have these outweighing things, but even then you can kind of look into the particulars at the the technique without being some technical nut or having experience for example how is this guy getting his knockouts okay well guy a is getting most of his knockouts from left hook right okay and he's the more potent knockout threat all right well let's go about guy b guys footage sample size and when we're doing his study we're going to keep that left hook in mind okay i want to keep that left hook in mind you know or if one guy is a southpaw and the other guy's orthodox, for example. And um, and let's say I don't have a profile on either of these guys, which you can use my profiles. You can use the work that I've already done for you to give you kind of a basis so, so you can actually not go into study blind. You can have something in mind. Like, okay, well, I know this guy's good at the left hook, so when I watch his opponent's footage, I'm going to be watched with the mind for the left hook. But let's just say you have uh, two strikers, one southpaw, one orthodox. You haven't seen footage on either. Watch the southpaws first because you're going to see him against primarily orthodox fighters and you're going to learn what he likes to set up against orthodox opposition now as soon as you have that in your head in your sample size of okay well this guy likes the typical southpaw stuff he likes the left liver kick and the check right hook all a luke rockhold so now when you're going to watch the orthodox fighter you can keep that in mind and go okay well i know that his opponent likes liver kicks and check hooks so i'm going to go through his whole sample size maybe i'll even go to earlier fights that's kind of non-relevant stuff that maybe i don't necessarily need to go but not only do i want to go back that far because i want to get a better beat on his learning curve to kind of 
plug that into the machine, right? In averages, you know, you can only get the average for however many numbers you plug in, right? So in your head, if you want to get an accurate read of averages on a guy's skill cell to learning curve, well, then you have to put those unfortunate arduous hours to watch. The early footage, I don't always recommend it, but if you have something specific you're looking for, like southpaws, chances are you're not going to have a big southpaw range. So you want to go, you're going to have to go back and look look um to see where this guy what this guy does against southpaws does he look uncomfortable okay he looks really uncomfortable okay well how does he look more relevant in his career okay well we have a southpaw maybe a couple fights ago that he faced let's look at that one now okay he's made clear improvement sure but there's still uncomfortabilities there he's he's going to school and all the orthodox guys but when he gets to southpaw guys you know he's having trouble so that's what i mean by forensic stuff um i don't want to give too many more examples this thing's already run way too long but hopefully those were enough examples of like basic things travis or anybody else asking that you yourself as just joe schmo with a basic set of eyes and a basic brain can look at because that's basically all it is man i mean uh you know um as much as y'all want to give me credit and compliments which i do appreciate thank you very much you know for my work and analysis it doesn't mean it's an end-all be-all man or, or that i'm even right right you know what i'm saying we have to get our own answers for ourselves use our own eyes and how you come across your own opinions Use basic points of forensic deduction. Be smart, and at the end of the day, don't try to be a red team versus blue team person. Be able to take in all points. That's how you're going to get your most accurate reads, not just for fights, but in life. All right, that's it. I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Thank you guys for supporting. Uh, we'll be doing some uh, top five uh, episodes uh, to keep you all uh, satiated during this August break. Uh, deliver your you know top five themes to me using a hashtag protect your neck podcast uh, at the mm analyst at the pym podcast you know where to get at me stay safe uh, trying to get overwhelmed with this may mayweather mcgregor uh circus coming in enjoy some summer enjoy the fucking time off get outside and until next time protect your neck <laughs>